at some point we just don't have enough energy to, to go around. Neuromorphic computing is just a necessity at that point. Welkom bij Surf Sounds. In deze podcast gaan we in gesprek met experts over ontwikkelingen op het snijvak van ICT, onderwijs en onderzoek. Leuk dat je luistert naar deze nieuwe aflevering. Mijn naam is Sanne Koenen. We will continue this podcast in English. Today we will be talking about sustainability in computing. Because with the increase of usage of computers of all sorts, the energy consumption is also going through the roof. ChatGPT is a recent example. The enormous energy consumption of one single prompt times a million a day worldwide is raising concerns. Are people aware of this? And if so, how can these kinds of developments in computing go hand in hand with sustainability goals? The experts agree, we have to explore new ways. So we are here today with Johan Mentik, scientist at the Radboud University in Nijmegen, who has been working on neuromorphic computing and Benjamin Chaya, High Performance Computing Advisor at SURF, who works hard to raise awareness on this topic. Well, good to have you both here. Um, before we're going to take a deep dive into neuromorphic computing and why this is promising, Benjamin, my first question is for you. Regarding uh, to this topic, if you should choose between I am hopeful or I am worried, what would it be? Uh, okay, I'm, I'm in... Um critical person so I, I i hate to say them a bit of a pessimist but uh i think maybe that the truth is is that um things within computing are all becoming more energy efficient everything is becoming more energy efficient but we are using more energy so um it's been estimated by the nrc that the dutch data centers use about three times as much as the dutch railway system energy, electricity-wise. So right now, worldwide, data centers use about 1% of worldwide energy. This is expected to grow somewhere around 10% in 10 years, maybe 20%. So that's 10 times more than the airline industry. Wow. Um, I'm optimistic because there's a lot of interests and there's a lot of developments, but it's just the way that our world is evolving to use more energy. Yeah. So a bit of both then. Yeah. Okay. So one of these developments is neuromorphic computing, Johan. Um, did you just decide one day, well, okay, this is the topic. I'm going to go on neuromorphic computing and now we'll work on this to see where it goes. Uh, no, I didn't like um, quite follow, follow like that. Now I am like, like that. I'm very enthusiastic about it. And, but how it came, it was, uh, yeah, we were just busy thinking about big programs for future research and then uh, like at that time we were had already big success in say finding out how can we write magnetic bits for data storage much faster and we realized at some point that it was also more energy efficient which is kind of strange that something is faster and it's also more efficient but <laughs> that was the case and it's still the case and it keeps say stimulating us to push the say the physical limits of of of, no, yeah, of what is possible there. We felt also maybe we need something new and then we started to think about what can we do inspired by the brain. Looking at this technology, what what is it? The basic of current hard, hardware design is that, that processing and memory, those, those are separated things. In neuromorphic computing, one of the paradigms is that processing and memory that's integrated. It's just at the same location. And that massively reduces data traffic. 
because that's how it works in our brains right now. And that's what neuroscientists tell yeah. that the brain has it also integrated. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the, and the brain is, I mean, that's a simple thing, like pattern recognition. What the brain can do, it can do it with something like twenty watts, and the supercomputer we would need one megawatt for comparable jobs. They just kind of combine. There is a different in, difference in architecture, and there's also a difference in energy consumption or power consumption. If you talk about watts, then and then they think that those things are related. So what what many people in neural computing do is then to build uh, hardware design, so to make hardware designs, which kind of um, make these uh, simple models we have about the brain, not the full models, to the, we don't understand the brain. So we cannot really replicate the brain. But what neuromorphic, say, engineers do is they have some simple models of the brain and they try to directly uh, put that in hardware and that those models of the brain indeed combine memory and processing at the same like location physically. And that enormously, that leads to this enormous uh, reduction in terms of the energy cost. It's, it's easily a factor of thousand that we get. At that time, we were, I think, uh, walking too much ahead of the crowd. So it was something that people did, but not something that really triggered a lot of interest. Like uh, engineers were saying, well, this is impossible. And on the other hand, people thought, look, if you think about brain-inspired, you should, you should go to a psychologist or uh, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but not to scientists like physicists like, like I am. So now there is much more interest. Now we see the big data centers. Like we, we see these developments. You see the protests and you see the problems with the power grid. So on the decision makers level, this is also something clear that we have a problem with energy. Yeah, and it's already here right now at yeah, our yeah, doorstep. Yeah. And this kind of also makes industry, like if you look to the big reports of the semiconductor uh, associations like in the US, they, they all have, in their neuromorphic computing is also on their agenda. So, to, so, And that was different 10 years ago. It was, and even five years ago, it was not so prominent. Okay. People thought neuromorphic computing is about understanding the human brain, uh, not about kind of some some, using, some alternative yeah. to GPUs, which are currently the work world of AI. You already said like it's a thousand times more efficient. Well, that's super promising, I think. How do you look at this development? Are you like super excited about it, Benjamin? Like, okay, this is really gonna gonna change this whole field, or uh, how do you look look at the work that Joan is doing right now? I mean, yes, of course. It's <laughs> yeah, you have to say now he's right next <laughs> to you, of course. <laughs> no, and that, that's what, um, uh, I mean, this is a surf podcast and it's my <laughs> job, but I, that's the whole reason why I like working in this job. So I work at a data center. It's as simple as that. There's a million data centers, well, maybe not a million, but there are many <laughs> data centers around the world. I just happen to work at a public research-oriented data center. So um, it's very important me and I hope the research community to really be close to these kind of developments, understand these developments and help these developments develop. So yeah, for me, it's incredibly exciting because yeah, you, I mean, Johan is a physicist and it is definitely future research, but it's about having that close connection with actual daily operations and future research that I think makes it exciting. Yeah. Because it's, or you already mentioned that a little bit before it's it's really getting close. Maybe this, these that you can because you're developing chips right now, right? Not I am not developing these chips. I'm I'm in a sense just as I would go as a user to surf for my supercomputing tasks. I now go to IBM, which doesn't have this 
these chips ready. I mean, you cannot buy them as a no. seed, but we can experiment with, with them and they actually do the hardware development. But we come with use cases, which are very interesting for them and then which can help them demonstrate the power of their new hardware. Yeah. So in this, this sense, we co-develop because mm-hmm. we, yeah, we give new ideas of, and yeah, there are always special things. And, and my, my excitement is also that if you do it with the companies like that, if you kind of put science as the application of neural warfare computing, you kind of make this loop much shorter because otherwise if you would have to wait for a business case and for a market and and so on, okay, knows maybe there's not, this market is not coming. No. And we anyway, we like it. We're kind of idealistic. We just yeah. want to have this knowledge. We just yeah. want to know this. Yeah. Just find it exciting. And also like maybe broader idealism of like, we it's for the public, but we, we are based on public funding to a large extent or maybe, yeah. to maybe 100%. So we, it's also what we as scientists can yeah. do to make a, make a better future, beside that we anyway believe that science is useful for society. <laughs> yeah. In this way, we can also kind of help this, this yeah, accelerate this. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. This, these larger challenges that we are facing right now, um, because the development uh, of computing, it will continue. It's not something that we can stop right now. So... It's also good that it's still developing. We don't know. We don't really know where it's going, but we know that there are limits to energy use. So, this is something that can actually make it more efficient. But what kind of doors will this technology open that are now closed? Do you have some examples of that? Yeah, I mean there are many. Like in general, I think if you think about neuromorphic, there are many examples in which you would like to do, um, uh, in which you have very high demand for a quick answer. Mm-hmm. Like you can think about uh, doctors which want to have a quick answer of, uh, in the interpretation of a large data set of, of whatever MRI images or mm-hmm. Or you can also think about uh, monitoring, like for, not forecasting, but, but, but early warning systems for, for like uh, earthquakes or volcano eruptions and so on. But you have many sensors at, at locations and then it's not... Then, then it's the latency that you want to achieve, but that's that's also a lot of traffic that you need to combine these sensors. But it's also the energy, mm. because though many of those sensors are, are in places where there is no standard power grid or so, but they are battery battery operated and then very efficient hardware, energy efficient, can operate with that those conditions. So, is it then more that it will make it um, easier rather than unlocking new ways that are now? Yeah, yeah. okay. If you're talking about it, that's, that's where my fascination is. Like, like as a scientist, you kind of are, are in a situation like I'm. I'm going to develop some new knowledge, and who knows what it's used for, right? Mm-hmm. If you would have to tell that to somebody in the Middle Ages who was working with uh, spears, you would tell, okay, you get a sharper spear, right? So that, and then you would be happy. Yeah, but of course, that's not true value of science, right? Science, no. Because science, if you make some discovery. You enable things which you never have thought about before. Yeah. So it completely yeah. revolutionizes the way society is organized. Like yeah. You have this also like when auto uh, autos came there, like cars, like and uh, and then now then the people do, uh, learned how to make transistors, then they could make chips, and then they could make a smartphone. That was not the decision of the physicists. That no. was the discovery of the transistor, no, right? So, so we cannot foresee in this sense what is no. the impact of neuromorphic computing. Uh, all we can do is just give examples of situation where there is now, say, energy is an, is an issue, like for for distance places where you do sensoring, or like uh, where we know in healthcare where we want to do, uh, just two examples. There are many more examples mm-hmm. to think about, of course. 
And yeah, as scientists, we say, okay, we want to do these or these kinds of calculations that you that we want to do, and uh, yeah, we don't know what is there because we never had access there. Like it's as if you can measure something which was unmeasurable before, and now we can compute something which was not computable before. Yeah, so, yeah. If you do not have the answer there, you can kind of also not forecast or predict. Yeah, what the what, what yeah, is what the solution? Yeah, for, yeah. If we would know that, then we wouldn't do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <It's>, clear. <laughs> I mean, so maybe I can ask a rhetorical question that, and I it's a hot topic as well is quantum computing. Yeah, but it is becoming understood that maybe that's it. They are kind of targeting certain problems that can only be solved with quantum computing. Yes. Does neuromorphic? Do you think have similar? Ah, yeah, that's targets? that's a nice question. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Benjamin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, like uh, there are two, uh, I mean, quantum computing, at least the technology that's currently being built, will not address the energy challenge because quantum computing operates at very low temperatures and you need something like cooling power of 10 kilowatts, which is like factor 100 larger than the GPUs that we have today. Like actually my research focuses on applying neuromorphic hardware to simulate quantum systems, right? So quantum, so there are certain quantum systems not all quantum systems, but it happens to be, I don't know why, but that's uh, okay. That uh, We proved that it was the case, that if we simulate, uh, if we approximate a quantum system with an artificial neural network and operate that on a neuromorphic chip, we get a very accurate assessment of this quantum system. It It is not solving the, so... Uh, I think there, so that means I think there will be in the future of compute some regime where quantum and neuromorphic kind of compete, both offer a solution there. But uh, at the moment, we don't have an efficient algorithm for the most complex quantum systems. And a quantum computer, like they, they, they talk about these complexity classes, they in principle have no limit on the complexity of quantum states. Mm. And for neuromorphic computing, we do have limits because in the end of the day, it's still a mapping of a quantum system with to a classical computer and you need an algorithm for that. So you don't know, of course, how many efficient algorithms we're going to develop, right? So it could be that for the vast majority of quantum systems that we're interested in for whatever reason, we can simulate it already on neuromorphic hardware. And then the room, say, for uniqueness or for quantum advantage is very small. Yeah. But it could also be that we realize, no, there's really a hard wall. There, I mean, there are some classes of kind of simple quantum systems, which are if still complex enough that, that I find them interesting, that I don't have an answer for them. Mm -hmm. But still, those are not the most, say, uh, complex. So the complexity classes that, that we are interested in are still unsolvable today, and in particular at the size that we want them. So my interest in using, is in using these neuromorphic computing for large quantum systems. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I rely, rely still on an algorithm, but even running that algorithm is too, too costly for me. Yeah. And with new hardware, I think it can be better. Um, or at least I have indications it can be better yeah. than th that it is today. So this this would be already exciting to me because like, if, yeah, uh, then it's already not unsolvable on a standard classical computer, even on a DPU. And I could then also save a lot of energy. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is, yeah, uh, it will be some, I mean, I, I collaborate with IBM. <laughs> mm. They are the... Mm, 
say, at the forefront. I think they are number one in the world at the moment with quantum computers. So, um, but still, they invest in neuromorphic hardware. Yeah. So they, they also see that it's not uh, the quantum computer is not the one solution for all. No. So they they are also interested in this comparison and and but the fact at the moment is that I can al- already thank to the efficiency of the algorithm simulate larger quantum systems and they can do with their full quantum computers. Okay. So that's promising. So and so I think yeah at, at least in the next five ten years or so I uh, for my applications. Yeah. Neuromorphic will be better than quantum, but yeah, you never know what is this development. A little bit of competition going on there. That's always good. But quantum computing is already known to to the bigger public, I think, or at least they have heard about it. Neuromorphic computing isn't. Is that also because, uh, well, neuromorphic computing is uh, focusing, I'm not sure if that's a good way, the way to say it, on energy efficiency. Is there a problem with awareness on energy efficiency among users in general right now? Yes. Um, so, okay, let's just let's just define some ground rules and, and bring our feet to the ground. So Snellius, the Dutch national supercomputer, operates generally at one megawatt. Um, this is about equivalent to 2,000 Dutch households, more or less. This is a back-of-the-envelope calculation. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's important to note that that this is a public research machine, and it's important that this information is in the hands of the public. So on a broader kind of scale, our lives, our modern lives, are just becoming more put towards the data center, and we don't really know. So when I grew up, there were just electronic things were larger and bigger, and you had to plug it into everything. And now I have more or less one device that sits in my pocket, and everything else is somewhere else. And I don't really know it. Um, so I think that's, from an awareness standpoint, that's kind of where I think we can really serve us. Because it is a public interest to understand the energy footprint of your usage of something that lives away from you. In this case, it's scientific research. So what we're working at is really trying to quantify how much energy usage is attributed to scientific research. And right now we have kind of low-level tools that really, if you want to uh, do your data analysis or, or run a simulation, we have software that allows you to more or less see how your program's interacting with the computer and how you could do better. Um, I think that's there now. Um, but it's having a PhD student doing whatever research he may be doing in the Netherlands is to understand that number next to his allocation that he gets. And that's the challenge. So um, it's a challenge of maybe we can get funding organizations to understand, okay, for one year we generally give you a million credits. We call them SPUs on Snellius. But maybe we can introduce a number next to that. Maybe they're electronic billing unit or energy billing units, EBUs or something, right. just so that it becomes an everyday thing that everyone knows. Oh, okay. I, I use this much this year. That's, that's okay. So it would be nice to see on an organizational level, how the, uh, Dutch, um, fund or scientific funding organizations will put a bit more, let's say, um, pressure on it. Yes. Yeah. On, on, uh, uh, kind of bringing that into an everyday value. Yeah. 
And is this something that institutions now are of our member, the members of SURF, do they have a role in this? Of course, they have a role in it, and they absolutely have interests. I mean, every time I, I feel like I interact with our members, so researchers, everybody's interested, generally. Um, and it, it just needs to be that it, it needs to be put into operation a bit more. That's, um, for instance, if you are, I was a PhD student once in the Netherlands. I didn't care how much money was given to me for giving so much compute. That stuff was the last thing on my mind. I just wanted to get compute time on the supercomputer. That was it. Um, so I couldn't really be bothered by the monetary value of the SPU. Um, I think that I can kind of feel that it, it's changing, or at least they don't still don't have to care how much money is behind it, but it would be nice that a, I think a researcher would know, oh, hey, look, I only used this many jewels this month or, or this sort of thing. So it's I think it's just kind of introducing that as an everyday value next to their research would be important on an, an awareness. Yeah. Okay. So you could kind of normalize this sort of behavior so that it allows an an organization like, organization like NWO to just say, oh, great, you already have that infrastructure. We can now start to build our funding towards, uh, yeah, allowing only an envelope for projects. Yeah. Energy. Yeah, when I when I ask a question, is there a problem in awareness? You were like really yes, so. <laughs> nodding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, do you have anything to add to, to what Benjamin just said? Uh, well, I was quite inspired. The colleague of mine, uh, Sasha Caron, he came with this idea of energy budgeting, like which is essentially what Benjamin now is saying. I think it was one and a half year ago or so, and I'm quite sure that if there are rules that force us to compute more energy efficient. There will be many people be happy making more efficient algorithms, more efficient hardware. So this will accelerate. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just uh, if there is a law like that and we cannot escape from it, then we adapt. Yeah. So I think it would be very good. Yeah. <laughs> it will also be uh, pushing the development of dramatically raise awareness. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yes. Actually, you also saw it last year with the so-called energy crisis. That people suddenly started to realize, okay, this whole the way the funding of service organized is not fitting what is happening now with this energy energy uh, this amount of money and in this and for the same reason many people started to kind of isolate their houses yeah, yeah. so that's just an ordinary human behavior and uh, you should not be afraid of saying oh but then we lose on other countries which don't have that so as if we then would run out of too much compute or or whatsoever it should rather be around. We can use it as an ad advantage of what we have in our infrastructure and then other bigger countries will follow. Yeah, yeah. So um, so that, that I think is just good and it will, uh, that's more on the question of awareness. It will automatically raise awareness because suddenly if you realize I cannot do this job anymore, yeah. you suddenly realize, oh, that's the that's promise. And I do see uh, many of my PhD students, they go more with the train to conference then with the plane. So they are already very <laughs> yeah. tied to be CO2 neutral, neutral yeah. and so on. So they, they are happy to accept that. So I'm not afraid of the PhD students themselves. They they will just accommodate with that. It's it's more uh, on a higher level that we have to to push that. Yeah. And then, okay, I, I don't automatically, that will also give more visibility to Neuromorphic yeah. as a potential solution. Even more funding maybe? Uh, Yes, also more funding. Yes, yes, that 
that you see coming at the European level, at least is at least what I understand from it. That that uh, yeah, there are more projects in which this neuromorphic is is mentioned, like Project Calls, and also the Dutch um, uh, Ministry of Economic Affairs. They have certain like um, key emerging technologies, mm-hmm. and neuromorphic computing is going to be one of them, or okay. is already one of them. Okay, which is very good. Yeah. Yeah, so that that uh, so I don't know really what to do. So uh, we cannot like quantum has its own say propaganda machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, a better one right now maybe than neuromorphic computing. Uh, in a sense, yeah, maybe I'm too idealistic. I don't care so much about that. So <laughs> so uh, it's good that quantum is there because it, it, we, it helps us to define what we are. Like if there is no competitor, you will not develop. No, you're just no, kind of uh, sitting on the top of your chair, and uh, <laughs> like yeah. that's it. So that's good, and uh, um, yeah, I I'm happy that you have this podcast, so to say. So <laughs> this will uh, increase awareness to people that have to make decisions. So I think for them, it's really important to realize how mature neuromorphic computing technology is. Is much more mature than what we have with quantum. Yeah, it is. It is more about a business case in terms of that you don't see mass use of it, than that it's about TRL, technology readiness. So in, with quantum, it's really different. Like there's there are geopolitical there there are other reasons, so to say, geopolitical and so on, to heavily invest in that also for industry mm-hmm. and so on. And that's I understand all that, uh, but they are really on the edge of what they can. So they they like. If if you compare that with the, in, uh, I was at IBM two weeks ago, they have three types of generations of neuromorphic hardware. Like one is is the most mature. Uh, one once that is kind of done, they have a second one and a third one. So with quantum, what is kind of close, what they sell kind of to Fraunhofer, for example, is based on 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 very old superconducting qubit technology. What is coming after that? Okay, there are certain there are like you you can can talk to the people in quantum at some other well maybe not for sustainability but but <laughs> <laughs> no but they have their they have their alternatives but all those are uh, yeah at the level of uh, less than ten qubits mm-hmm. like and they so that's very very small yeah even what they sell at the moment is small yeah so it it's yeah. Yeah, that's so so so. Is it more like a business case that is now not? There was a influential Nature paper about neuromorphic computing last year by twenty in twenty twenty two, which says neuromorphic computing needs a master plan. So that's kind of well, quantum computing doesn't really have it. It's also competing, but but the point is that neuromorphic computing is too disorganized basically, and and you see these challenges there, and it really would need some coordinated effort. Yeah. So, so um, yeah. What is the best way to to, to, to collaborate? Yeah, somehow, that I have no simple answer for. We need some kind of playground because you need a kind of accessibility, or you need to build this workflow. Because yeah, you cannot uh, for every new problem make a new chip or so, which is then most efficient for that kind of job. Yeah, we need we need to know. Um, yeah, which kind of jobs are most easily accelerated and what kind of hardware is for that and how we can integrate those hardware and integrate that in existing workflows. 
So, uh, yeah, in that sense, I just uh, hope that many people kind of uh, follow the, the path that I f started with because, yeah, I also have only a limited number of use cases, of course. Yeah. Because, yeah, I have just one research group, well, not just one. <laughs> I'm really happy with one, but <laughs> I cannot uh, divide myself. No. So it's more like yeah. you're offering this new possibility and now it's, yeah, you, you, you talked about a playground. Other people have to jump in and see yeah, how and they can use this for their own conditions for that and one condition can be that we have uh, that we have it accessible in a cloud-based fashion yeah like that. that's that's yeah is that already coming soon uh, i hope that is that is one of the the things that i hope to, to develop with surf like and but uh, so that is more yeah so now i, re I realize there that is one application so if you think about the future of neuromorphic computing for science, there are two kinds of application areas. One is in, in cloud-based or HPC centers. And the other is in, that's another interesting approach, is in advanced infrastructure. You can think about astrophysics, like with the big telescope, have huge amounts of data. And uh, like uh, the LHC, the particle colliders, they, they also have enormous data rates and they have to really decide in, in tens of nanoseconds, do we store this data or not? Because the amount of data they generate is just way too much. It's impossible to store that even for a minute. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So those, then you'll talk about edge computing. So that, that's at the edge. And um, if I talk with Sagar, he thinks that those are the earliest adopters of neuromorphic hardware because those physicists or scientists already today have kind of their own uh, hardware for analysis and, and, and processing and so on. Whereas uh, the computational physicists and the chemists, as I am, they are used to have something remote, remote access. They, they buy once every year uh, their own compute cluster mm. and just like some boxes of what is best uh, offering for their just a decision, simple decision, but not really with uh, hardware understanding. No. And yeah, I think maybe I can highlight that um, we have, a, I don't know the right word for it yet, it's still being decided, but we have somewhat of an experimental zone within SURF um, that uh, is more or less a collection of, of up-and-coming computer architectures. I don't think that we have a neuromorphic chip in there. I mean, yes. So. But um, the idea behind this is to have people like Johan and people from other disciplines that want to try their particular little niche in science and how they interact with a, a computer to try it on this hardware. So we have FPGAs, we have different types of uh, accelerators um, because it is unknown and and and. You, we try to understand, we ha we know our users and we know kind of emerging technologies. We, we try to kind of bring those two together. Together, yeah. So this could be a use case for having um, a, a neuromorphic chip within our SURF uh, experimental zone. Yeah. yeah. So how do you think this will evolve? At some point, we just don't have enough energy to, to go around. So yeah. we're going to need this. And our... Uh, Neuromorphic computing is just a necessity at that point. Yeah. So you can just move away from economics and markets, any of this. It's I I I, I agree. No, uh, it's a necessity. Like the, yeah. Um, it would be absolutely stupid to kind of leave that topic aside. And at the same time, I feel it's so evident that we cannot work with this and we cannot pay for that 
that uh, it will come somehow how by itself yeah on the other hand yeah the market for advertisements like the the the, the formula that microsoft uses for chat gpt is very simple they say uh, the, the whole market of, of art advertisements is so many billions, whatever, maybe per day, really huge amount of money. And this is almost completely for online, almost completely owned by Google, is their search machine. If you just get 1% of that, so that's maybe 100 million per day. Oh, then I can easily afford paying 10 million, whatever, for electricity per day. Because I still then have a profit of 90 million. Yeah. So they, in their thinking, there is no urgency Urge, yeah. to really change their hardware. They, yeah, they just want to have it run and they kind of negotiate with, with governments on where do I get the cheapest uh, wind energy or solar energy to power my stuff. So, and I think that that issue can only be solved on a public level with regulations and what we can do, I think, or what we do, that's, I feel at least our position from public side for in, in the research context, how we can accelerate that, how we can push that. And, um, yeah, to, to put neuromorphic more to the minds of the people, I think, yeah, we should really, uh, influence then politicians in the end. But should there be like what Benjamin said before, like maybe also be like a maximum amount of? Uh, oh yes, again that's true. Energy. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, that, that I already said that would certainly help. Yeah. If, if for government... companies also, like like, I'm not sure if it's possible for Google or, or uh, companies that want to operate in the Netherlands, for example, or in Europe, even better. Can you regulate them like that? Ooh, if a European level would do that, that would help. On the Netherlands, not, not because they, won't like, know. Just, like, <laughs> they don't care. Facebook didn't or Meta didn't build the data center in Zeewol. Uh, they will do it in whatever Finland yeah. or Germany. But uh, if all Europe would say like they do now with the AI uh, regulations, we are not allowing data centers to do this and that, and all data centers for the Europeans, European people have to be sustainable as possible in the Netherlands or in Europe we are not we don't want our data to be stored in US or China yeah that would be uh, a good change Benjamin's like yeah it's not you want to add something to that I mean it's like regulating the airline industry yeah 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 is does yeah. that happen on a European level not yet let's hope for it <laughs> well let's let's I mean, okay, that's, if you just talk... conversation, yeah, hopeful. Yeah, 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 sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, don't, you don't know. No, 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 no. I'm, wow, how to say it? We have so many changes in politics. But, okay, why not? We just have to say it. I, I feel, in a sense, this is our duty. I mean, we're yes. scientists. Yeah. We are funded by these public things. We, I feel there are certain... Um, how to say it? We can just say what is a simple solution, and that is a simple solution. Yeah. Just regulate it on EU level. Uh, power consumption power consumption or energy consumption of all IT cannot exceed uh, this amount and we just allocate funding to make the technology to make it happen and then it will come it's yeah no problem. yeah and as, as soon as people start to 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 notice like limits on their day-to-day -day business they will also of course probably influence politicians to take action right or will it be too far away I think so no 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 I I, I think that's actually a good point because Look, people 
our, our world is becoming more electric. Beyond it being going to a data center, it's becoming more electric. So the way we want to become more uh, climate neutral is by electrifying everything and then just having wind energy as yeah. a uh, source. Yeah. So people of my generation, I would think, or the conversations at least I hear, everyone's buying an electric car, talking about an electric car and comparing their cars and how fast it charges. This is contemporary conversation. But there's a value in there that they are all of a sudden getting knocked in their heads. It's no longer... I'm sorry for the American term, but miles per gallon, but it will then become kilowatts per something. Yeah. So that kind of understanding is transferable. A kilowatt of you driving your car, a kilowatt of you using your um, dishwasher, a kilowatt of you doing your scientific research is the same value. Same value yeah. So that will become kind of more every day. Yeah. I think that's powerful. Yeah, I think so too. Good point. So what, what will the next thing be that you will be like super excited about and like high five your research group and like, yes, we did it. Computing the uncomputable. If we demonstrate that, that would be uh, super exciting. Yeah. yeah. Is that something that is possible? Do you, my, or... my PhD student is working on that. Okay, yes. cool. So, so try to be. Yeah. It's coming. It's, it's coming. Uh, yeah. Okay, do you have a time path for it? Like, is okay. it coming in 30 years or two years? No, 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 or? no, 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 no. Uh, okay, I don't know. You never know. No, you never know, but so, like the scope. These projects are four years. He started one year ago, so I hoped. Yes, three years year. left. <laughs> okay. No pressure. On no him. pressure. <laughs> okay. No, but uh, I mean, I'm quite optimistic about that. It's not, not impossible. And maybe it's even faster, like, there, uh, with different hardware paradigms, like... Uh, in, I was on a conference, two conferences this summer, like, and there's lots to do about like what I this PhD works on in memory computing. There's lots to do with Ising machines, which people can now build in hardware, which is another neuromorphic, or you can at least alter, alternative to standard har hardware paradigm. Maybe that is earlier, and those people are, are really excited to try also these things. So okay. that can already be. Each. I don't know. I meet him on Friday, so who knows what they are. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's good to hear. And Benjamin, for you, is there something like you're looking at in the future that um, I'm hoping for that to happen in the near future? Yes. Um, less energy usage. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm hoping. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's not like a concrete uh, high five moment for you. <laughs> no. Just... It's a general energy. It's not as hot outside. It'd be nice. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, of course. No, I would first say, I don't know, sitting on your chair a bit, but I would say first have these demonstrators in your experimental zone, which at the moment you don't have. Like that would be already milestone. And the next milestone would be, be then integration in your whole HPC workflow. That would be. Uh... Yeah, you could definitely say that maybe this. Uh, um, it becomes a bit more of an everyday topic like quantum is. And then we start to get more interest into um, developing these technologies and having these technologies. in Okay, cool. Well, it'll be cool. Uh, that's what I was cool. I, I have all different ways. Yeah, yeah, possible. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both very much for this talk. I hope it helps with awareness. And let's get that number of energy use up on the board in research and even maybe push for European regulation on maximum amount of use of energy and clear the path for neuromorphic computing. <laughs> yes, yes. That would be fantastic. Yeah. We will do our best from the science side. Je hebt geluisterd naar Surf Sounds, een podcastserie van Surf 
de ICT-samenwerkingsorganisatie in onderwijs en onderzoek. Wil je meer weten over Sustainable Computing? Kijk op SurfNL. Vergeet niet je te abonneren, zodat je geen aflevering meer mist. We zijn te vinden in je favoriete podcast-app. Deze podcast werd gemaakt door Jan Michielsen, Marieke van Dijk, Philip Stijn en Sanne Koenen. Met speciale dank voor onze gasten Johan Mentink en Benjamin Chaya. Dank voor het luisteren.